All right, good morning to you. It's great to be in the study of God's Word together. So take your Bibles and let's head over to the Gospel of Luke. We are beginning chapter 13 this morning. And of course, as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, things are ramping up. So these will be wonderful studies, even as this last chapter, chapter 12, has been for us. But we'll be beginning Luke chapter 13 this morning and watching yet another wonderful set of instructions come from the Lord. There is a, a now famous Q&A clip that uh, goes around the internet that happened at Ligonier Conference some years back with R.C. Sproul. The late R.C. Sproul is with the Lord now. Many of you know Ligonier Conference is an annual theological conference in Orlando. And during this clip, the MC of the Q&A posed the following question to Dr. Sproul. He said, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was God's wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Dr. Sproul, in only the way that he can, gave this arresting response. He said, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God And God had said, in the day that you eat of the forbidden tree, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day. And he was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. And he had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe. And in the Q&A clip, he leans into the audience and says, what's wrong with you people? (laughs) He said, I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't the punishment infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? End quote. What happens in in the human heart and in our minds is we turn the paradigm upside down. We look horizontally and we begin to drift away from a right understanding of who God is and a right understanding of who the sinner is before God. The culture around us doesn't help because it is constantly, according to the scriptures, suppressing those realities. They don't want to hear of them and Christians can fall prey to the same idea that somehow God has been unjust, that somehow the punishment didn't fit the crime. Before we dive into what Jesus unfolds here in Luke 13, look for a moment with me at Romans 1. It bears repeating for just a moment because this is the foundation of our perspective. In Romans 1, God tells us the way things really are. And we should not forget it. We need not ever forget it. It's a shame when we do. Here it is. In Romans 1, the Bible teaches that all mankind is guilty without exception. We live in a state of guiltiness. You can't get away from it, can't get out from underneath it, can't avoid it, can't go around it. 
Why? Because the creator of the universe, when he made us in his image, built within us the knowledge of himself so that everything we do that attempts to run from him, silence the reality of our guilt before him, is in and of itself unrighteousness. And God made it clear, he says. Notice verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What does that mean? It means no one escapes it. There, there is without exception guiltiness on the part of all. God, in his wrath, which he's willing to reveal to demonstrate his character, reveals it from heaven against all of it, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's us. And prior to Christ and grace, we do everything we can to shut it out, to shut out the knowledge that burdens our hearts, nags our minds, that there is a day coming. We shut it out. And every day we wake up, the world around us that we observe hits us and we have to suppress it all the more. Notice verse 19. That which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. How did he do that? Well, since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, they've been clearly seen. By whom? By his creatures, moral creatures, made in his image. That's us. They've been clearly seen through what has been made. So the knowledge of God's existence and character is revealed to us through our rational observation of his created order. And God designed it to be evident to us, clear. He designed it so we could look at it, observe it, look at the wonder of mankind, use our God-given intellect, reason to observe all that he's made. His existence and his character show up in our psyche, in our understanding, in our rational being, in our logic. His character is on display in all that we observe about life. He designed it that way, it's within us. It's like the Old Testament when Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.14 that God works everything so that we might fear him. That's right. He worked everything, designed us in in such a way that when we see his works, we're supposed to fear him. We're supposed to. His providence, his created order, his purposes. He works in such a way that we are driven to dependence and reverent worship. That is how we are made. That is how he designed it. And he impregnated everything he created with the marks of his genius. We richly enjoy it. And we're supposed to conclude that it's from him. We're supposed to conclude that he is exalted and we are not. We're supposed to conclude that we're dependent underneath him, that he's holy and he's powerful and he's above us. We have a moral nature. We look at morality. We see that. It's built into us and yet it's tainted. He is not. We can see that. It's there. Notice Paul says his eternal power, the infinite power of the creator is known. His divine nature, his divine essence, his character When you look at nature, you see its beauty and you recognize it as beauty. You see its diversity, you see its order, you see its complexity. We see all the seasons, we see all the natural cycles, we observe its wonders. And we reason in our minds that if that kind of beauty and diversity and order and complexity exists, there must be a designer. And then we look at mankind, we observe each other and we see an immaterial part of us that is absolutely mind-blowing, personhood, emotion, conscience, 
the mind, the intellect. These things can't be touched medically, scientifically measured. They cannot be seen with the naked eye. They're immaterial, but they're there. They're sure as there in every human being. Unless there's a mutation that mutes it, we've, we see it, we observe it. It's built in. Morality is built in. There's a global understanding that God exists. There's self-consciousness. There's reasonability. There's laws of logic. We freely make choices. This is all just the immaterial part of man that we observe. And then there's the physiology of it, which I mentioned last week. Medical doctors, how much they're going to have to answer for. Because there is in the study of the human body symmetry and complexity and functionality and and serviceability and self-sustaining, self-repairing reality. It's unbelievable. And then we observe not just nature and not just mankind, but good and evil. We observe with intensity the sense of right and wrong that we have built in us. We know instinctively by human nature that killing another human being is a violation of human dignity, of human sanctity, and human equality. We know it. It is automatic. And we have an active conscience, strong demands for ultimate justice. Disease and death cause us to long for and hope for a time when all of that's gone. Where where does that come from? We're not instinct. We're not animalistic indifference. I'll tell you this though, we're hypocrites. Because we deny that God exists, we suppress that truth in unrighteousness, yet we turn around and try to act like we, we can borrow from those realities to get what we want. You say, what do you mean? Well, we deny that God exists, so logically, we shouldn't believe in the concept of moral accountability or justice, yet when someone hurts us, we demand it. Why would we demand something that doesn't exist? Because there's no God to create it. So logically, we shouldn't believe in the concept of moral accountability. It's kill or be killed. It's the survival of the strongest. It's instinct. It's the animal world. We're hypocrites. Or we deny the existence of God, but then we turn to find help from something outside of humanity. Have you ever seen that? In a tragedy, people who don't believe in God suddenly will say things like, okay, I want you to pray. What, what is that? What is prayer? Pray, what is prayer? Pray what? To whom? For what purpose? If there is no God, what, I'm praying to people, why don't I just call it talking to them? It's not praying to them, I talk to them. We're hypocrites. We deny God's existence, but then, while claiming to be atheists, we spend our whole life railing against the very concept of God. Listen, listen, if you're an atheist and you don't believe that there is a God, then why rail against the concept of a God? Why, does, why don't just treat it like a simple difference of, of whatever? You know, you like orange juice, they like tea. Who cares? I'll tell you why you rail against it, because Romans 1 says it's built in. It nags you that it, there is that reality. And you push against it and you suppress it to shut it down. And when God allows you to experience life in a fallen world, you will even raise up some idea that if there is a God, he's unjust. You ever heard people say that? I will never worship a God like that if he allows that kind of thing to happen. You hear it all the time. Listen, beloved, 
what Romans teaches and what Jesus is about to teach in Luke 13 takes that paradigm and puts it on its head and doesn't allow us to drift into this this unbelief that says somehow I have a right to put God on trial because you have to look at it from God's perspective. From God's perspective, here is the situation. Every day, people live their lives defiant against the very truth that hits their heart with every breath, that there is a God. They suppress it and defy it They belittle the truth and belittle God. They denounce him for providences even though they originally say he doesn't exist. They don't like his person if there is indeed a God. How do they suppress it? Further unrighteousness, the Bible says. They sin more aggressively. They more frequently hurt others and lie to themselves and lie to others. They boast more triumphantly. They excuse their guilt more violently. This is how the culture goes. From God's perspective, that's his creature doing what what Adam did in the beginning. This human being made of dirt says, I will not respond to you as a creator. And we think the punishment is too severe. He didn't die that day. People don't die every day for all their railings. And evil and death, and tragedy, and affliction, and human suffering, and even natural disasters, they're a result of the fall. They're a result of man's pride in his humanity against God. They're a result of sinful rebellion that entered the world in the beginning and continues to this day. Sinners, even if they acknowledge that God might exist, rail at him for not giving them what they want in this life. And we think the punishment is too severe when he does allow consequences to hit? From our perspective, in our unbelief, the concept of a God like that seems tyrannical. He seems like some sort of ogre that demands allegiance or else. But from God's perspective, which, by the way, is the only righteous perspective, fallen man can observe that he exists and that that God exists and that he's a faithful creator of merciful love and wonder, but he takes that truth and throws it back in God's face with daring and still he wakes up the next day breathing. This is, this is to turn the entire universal paradigm on its head. And God patiently waits, and he allows sinners to wallow in the folly and consequences of their life as a mercy, instead of wiping them off the planet right then and there. And in the middle of it, he's constantly calling out, He's constantly saying, I made a way of escape. I made a way of rescue. There is redemption in my son. Is it any wonder that Paul says in verse 20, they are without excuse? They're without excuse. Look at chapter two for just a moment. The beginning of chapter two, therefore you have no excuse. Now you pass judgment, but when you pass judgment and the thing you judge another, you condemn yourself or you, you practice the same things. Oh, the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles, but they do the same things. The Gentiles thought they were free from the law, and so therefore they were excused, but they did the same things. People playing judge of another. 
Verse 2, you know, everyone knows the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who sin like that and do the same yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? This is exactly what we do in humanity. We, we make little hierarchies. We look at the worst people in society and say, I'm better than them. I got this. I'm surviving because I'm enjoying the blessing of God. Jesus is about to shatter that perspective. He's about to shatter it. Here's the tendency of the human heart, Paul says. Notice verse 4 of Romans 2. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Wow. So while you're running amok in your life with all this freedom, this personal license, you take it as personal innocence. Well, I must, there must not be a judgment coming. I must be fine. If I have the freedom to sin like this, then it must, my license to do it must, must mean I'm innocent in the doing of it. No, 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 Paul says, you're taking lightly the kindness and patience and forbearance of God. He's being patient. And you're taking it lightly. You're seeing it of little value. And notice he says, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. I'll tell you what else we do. We look at God's patience and see it as entitlement. We see that God waits. And while he waits, we think we're entitled He's so kind and so patient that when he's just and something falls upon us, we think he's unjust. And Paul says you're storing up wrath and, and that day of wrath is coming. Let's see how Jesus deals with this in Luke 13. In the meantime, God continues to be patient and kind not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. And God is gracious. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's gracious. And furthermore, when moral evil happens or natural evil happens, Jesus is about to say, look, those things, human tragedy, are very compelling evangelism. Very compelling evangelism because those things are intended to wake up the conscience of the sinner. They're intended to wake up the conscience of the sinner. Notice chapter 13, verse 1. On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable that a man had a fig tree which, he'd been, which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit in this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Listen, beloved, this is absolutely as gracious as it gets right here. During these final days of 
intense instruction and warnings given to the crowds by Jesus as he's making his way to Jerusalem. You remember, he just taught them that when he came and did his work on the cross and he, when, he, when he comes to do his work on the cross and he rises from the dead, it's gonna be a fire that he's lighting on the earth and drawing a line in the sand. He just said that in chapter 12, verse 49. And he was also saying that he's gonna identify with sinners when he comes. He came to identify them, chapter 12, verse 50. He'd said, I have a baptism to undergo, how distressed I am until it's accomplished. I want to go through this for sinners. I'm identifying with your need. And he said, when I do, and, and you're saved by it, it's gonna separate you from family members. Some of you are gonna come to Christ, some of you are gonna reject me. I'm gonna set the true against the false. This is gonna be a clear line. No murkiness. And because people missed the Savior, he had to describe why. So in 54 to 56 of chapter 12, he says that pride is what causes you to miss the Savior. You become blind to him. And then you don't settle accounts. Some people just don't concern themselves with what's about to happen at the end of their life. They don't settle accounts at all. I've seen people on their deathbed, they're just stubborn till the day is long. What's happening? They are minimizing the threat. There is no threat. They're suppressing the reality that some threat is coming across that death threshold, and it is coming. And Jesus points that out. Look, on your way, he says, verse 58 of chapter 12, make an effort to settle with your opponent so he doesn't drag you to the judge. It's just a little analogy to say, look, settle your spiritual account. Get it done. Go before God. Assess your spiritual condition. Don't wait. And so in that context, at some unspecified time not too long later, same crowd, notice what it says, chapter 13, on the same occasion, that is to say, some unspecified time not too long after that, a small group in the crowd reported to him about this tragic incident involving Pontius Pilate the Roman procurator. And apparently, as it had happened, Pilate had ordered the murder of some Galilean Jews who were there to sacrifice in the section of the Temple Mount where they could sacrifice, being Galileans. And having murdered them, because Pontius Pilate was cruel, he took their blood, or at least in the murder while they were doing the sacrifices, their blood mingled with that of the sacrifices. And so it's not only a tragic murder and slaughter, it was a moral evil perpetrated against them by an out of control governor, but it was also highly desecrating to the Jews, to Israel. This would start a riot. Josephus, one of the historians, would record that when Pilate was appointed, almost as soon as he was appointed governor of that area, he, he got started off on these kinds of footings. He, he decided all kinds of things just to agitate the Jews in their religion, and it often created so much trouble that Pilate was in a lot of hot water with the Roman emperor uh, almost from the start. One particular point, right when he got in office, he, he reenacted a long-established tradition in Rome that Caesar's image would be put on the standards that the armies would carry. And most governors wouldn't even do that in Jerusalem because that was the holy city and that was for the Jews and they kept that out of there and the Jews thought that was idolatry. But Pilate didn't care about that and so he reestablished this particular law. And so they implored him for 
five days, he refused to hear them. And he implored them, they implored him and implored him, and he finally agreed to meet with them in a local amphitheater, and he'd set the whole thing up. History tells us that it was just a ploy to get the protesters into this trap, and he, once he got them in there, he ordered the soldiers to surround the crowd. He threatened to behead the whole group, which was foolish to say because he couldn't do it. He couldn't carry that out. It would have been too big a massacre, and he was smart enough not to do that and catch the eye of Caesar. Nonetheless, he threatened them and made them very angry, and when they bared their necks and said, go ahead, we're not, we would rather have our heads cut off than have your Caesar's image put in the holy city and defile our, our God, uh, well, he couldn't do anything, so he had to stand down, and he was extremely angry, and the whole city was agitated. He almost provoked a riot. It only served in Pilate to make him more and more cruel. Later on an occasion, he used money from the temple treasury to build his aqueduct to Jerusalem and again sent the place into an uproar. Protesters gathered. Pilate shut the thing down but he had his soldiers dress up in civilian clothes, go out into the crowd and at the right moment when he gave the command they unveiled who they really were and in the ensuing uh, pursuit slaughtered a whole bunch of them. He was cruel. Philo described Pilate's character as one of impeachable. He was needing to be impeached because of the way he ran his government. He was corrupt, Philo said. He had acts of insolence all the time, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending, meaningless, and most grievous inhumanity, Philo said. So when you see Pilate wash his hands and tell the crowd he doesn't want to crucify Jesus, it's not because he's noble. He's always covering himself. The incident here has no details given. It's mentioned here without detail. And whether these Galileans were some sort of zealots or insurrectionists whom Pilate had to quell or something like that, they were brutally murdered and their sacrifices were desecrated. It was a criminal act. It was a gross abuse of power. It's a tragedy. It's a moral evil perpetrated on those people by an evil ruler. That's true. But here's what Jesus turns it into. He's basically wanting them to think about this. None of those Galileans got up that morning with any awareness that this would be their last day on earth. That's like any moral evil that's perpetrated on you. You don't walk to it. And a natural evil that comes upon you, you don't expect it. None of these Galileans got up that morning knowing that That day, they were going to face the only living and true and holy God of the universe. Their death was sudden, it was unexpected, and it was eternally tragic. I think about that sometimes. When I think about someone who lives for themselves all their life, sometimes I think about, you know, the superstar culture that we have and those people that become rich and famous, and they're they're full of all that everyone dreams about having in this life, the, the <clears throat> admiration of their peers, fame and fortune, and then some unsuspecting tragedy happens through some sort of substance or some sort of violent whatever in the arena they traffic in, the underbelly of that sort of culture. And when it happens, and I hear it on the news, the first thought that comes to my mind is this passage. 
because I'm thinking they just entered the presence of the one living and true and holy God of the universe and he had been patient with them all their life. And they, like Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, died in their sins. So Jesus says, I wanna, I wanna turn this into compelling evangelism. I wanna turn the situation into compelling evangelism. The report was given to him and notice what happens. Verse two, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this outcome? That is an interesting way to introduce a response to the news. And Jesus is essentially saying this, human tragedy should wake up the sinner's conscience. It's a grace from the Lord. It's a time of weeping horizontally. We get with people and weep with them. Human tragedy is devastating, whether moral or natural. We're humans. We're weak. We're not anybody's judge. We're not the judge of the universe. I go to the hospital all the time and face tragedy. I've seen some tragedy in my own personal life loss of a child, things like that. You, many of you have faced that, whether a crime perpetrated against you or your family or natural evil overtaking you or relatives or somewhere on the globe seeing that kind of thing happen. We weep with one another over those human tragedies. But human tragedy is intended to wake up the sinner's conscience and it is a time of vulnerability because a dangerous assumption can develop in the human mind and heart because of our sin. And Jesus illustrates it with that assumption. He says, do you suppose, do you assume that those Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this outcome? To many people at the time, and especially the minds of the Jews, bad things happen to good people because of some direct judgment of God upon their sinful life, and those that survive are actually better morally. That's why we didn't suffer that fate. We're better morally. Going way back into history, you remember the story of Job. That's exactly what happened with his friends. His friends came around him and said, Job, you, come on, you, this, all this bad stuff's happening to you. You have some secret sin in your life. You're, you're not wanting to confess it. That's why God is punishing you. And by the time you get to the time of Jesus, things hadn't changed much in the mindset of Israel. His disciples, Jesus' disciples at one point in seeing a blind man, they said, so... So he was born blind? Well, so who was the sinner? His parents or some curse upon him for the life he was going to live that would be like his parents? Which one was it? Who sinned, he or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, you could see the mindset is, is that if something bad happens to you, it's not, a, it's not a sign of God's gracious patience that you're the survivor of it. If something bad happens to someone near you, you don't look at it like that, you look at it as though you're separate from it. Oh, that, I'm glad that didn't happen to me. I, I wonder if God's favoring me for, for the good-natured person that I am. Sometimes we even equate a tragedy-free season of life with God's blessing upon our basically good nature and our goodwill toward others. And we might even question the justice and goodness of God if we end up having to feel the effects of some evil in the world. Well, that's exactly what happened here. Instead of seeing themselves rightly before God, how, how, how should they have seen themselves? As sinners who always live in a constant state of guiltiness and have an urgent need for reconciliation with God. That's how sinners should see themselves. When you come to Christ, you ought to remember that's what you were. 
You ought to remember that's who you were. And God is holy. And were it not for him pouring out his wrath on his son on our behalf, that's how we would be viewed. Whether we had a life of fame and fortune or whether we had a tragic life, either way, God is no respecter of persons. You are guilty. To shift the paradigm on its head and imagine something different, Jesus says, is foolish. People see others go through a tragedy. They try to morally elevate themselves above the poor souls that, that this happened to. I mean, it's kind of the human heart's way of calming fears about facing those same things. And we develop notions like Job's counselors did about how God owes us protection from calamities since we try to live better than other people do. That's what we do. I've known so many people angry with God saying, I will never worship a God like that because I did this and he didn't pay me back for it. I was good, I did this and he didn't do the right thing by me. You remember Asaph was envying the wicked world around him because they seemed to live high and in the high life and just seemed to enjoy it while he tried to be righteous before God and keep himself from the world and he started to envy them and he said, I, I almost turned into a beast thinking like that. That's right. We think God owes us protection from calamities because we try to live better than other people. Look, that isn't the point. Jesus says if that's what you suppose, then your theology is bad theology. You say, well, doesn't God at times directly punish entire cultures for their wickedness? Well, in ancient times, he certainly did. And I suppose he does the same thing now at times, directly and dramatically judge a culture for its wickedness, some ancient pagan empire that he brings down. You saw that with King Herod who bragged about being sort of a demigod and he died on the spot. God can do that, making it obvious. Furthermore, it's also true that natural consequences from a sinful life God allows them to happen, and in some ways, that is a judgment. You see that in Romans 1. You want to live immorally, it can lead to perversion, a a mind that's given over to depravity, homosexuality, and all kinds of perversions, and you receive in your body the due penalty of your error, Romans 1 says. Sure, there are natural consequences to a life of sin. Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the treacherous is hard. Sure. You see that in the way that violent criminals live, right? Jesus told Peter, hey, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Look, violent criminals often die a a violent death because they traffic in that kind of world. Drugs and drunkenness often lead to a tragic death. Immorality often leads to disease. These are natural consequences, and God sometimes allows them. And sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes people escape all of those personal consequences for a while. But it is not true that all natural calamities or moral evils that come upon the unsuspecting are some sign of God's recompense against those people for being greater sinners than the rest of us who survive it. So the lesson in a calamity is not, well, gee, I'm glad I continue to escape an untimely death because God favors my good nature. No, the truth is that all people are guilty sinners. And as one commentator said, we are all living on borrowed time. I would say it this way. We're all living under the patience of God. 
And if you've come to Christ, that's why he was patient, because he was redeeming you, saving you, rescuing you. He's patient. Not wishing that any should perish, 2 Peter says. The Apostle Paul, you know how he saw himself, 1 Timothy 1.16? He saw himself as, as the foremost of sinners. I mean, that's how we ought to view ourselves. If I take another breath, it has to be because of the mercy of God in Christ. It has nothing to do with whether God could snuff me out, should snuff me out, whether I deserve to be snuffed out. Paul saw himself at the end of his Christian life as one who was the foremost, and the only reason God saved him, he says, is to be an example to you of God's mercy. Is that how you view yourself? Or do you think, you know, I'm in Christ, and it's because I, he did his shopping in my aisle. I'm a fairly decent fellow. I was, in fact, more savable than the wretch next door to me. Do you have notions that creep in like that? That somehow God had to save you, you were fairly decent. Or have you ever thought, oh man, God should save that person. Can you imagine what that person would do for Christ if God could save them? Look how nice they are. Listen, God is a holy God, we're all infinitely guilty, that's it. We're all the foremost. We are what we are, as Paul says, by God's grace, and the only reason God waited patiently to save you and I is so he could be an example of his mercy to those around us. That's how we're to view ourselves, and that's the point Jesus is making. Don't make the dangerous assumption. And that's just dealing with a moral evil, like Pilate committing a crime. Jesus even brings up natural evil. Look at this, verse four, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. You know, at the, at the lower part of the city of David is the pool of Siloam, and, and apparently they built this huge wall adjacent to it, and it was sort of the adjacent side of this tower, and over time it apparently weakened. And as everyone scattered, as that wall started to come down, 18 of them didn't make it. And Jesus even brings that up. They didn't get up that day thinking, oh, I'm going to meet my creator today. No. It doesn't matter whether it's a tidal wave that sweeps over a city, unsuspecting people. It doesn't matter whether it's an earthquake. It doesn't matter what natural evil it is, hurricanes, whatever, a wall falling that was poorly constructed or, or worn out over time. God knows when your day is going to end. He knows how it's going to end, whether it's moral evil or natural evil. It is coming. And Jesus says that in every one of those human tragedies is a gracious call of God upon your conscience. It is a gracious call of God on your conscience. And he basically tells you there's only three realities here you must know. Three realities. Notice what he says each time. I tell you no, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. I love that. Both times, with moral evil or natural evil, he says, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. In that, he's telling us these three things, these three realities. Number one, repentance is the only way. All right, that's it. You cannot scoot in. You cannot ooze in. You cannot bring your good works and join them with Jesus' 
grace and, and add that. If you're a person who's in a works religion, doesn't matter which one it is, a cult or Mormonism or Catholicism or whatever the works system is, you cannot add your works to the grace of Christ and get in. You will not make it. To rely on, to entrust yourself to anything in and of yourself is to damn yourself. Repentance is the only way. What is repentance? Repentance is merely going before God and admitting just that. I am unholy, you are holy, and I know what's wrong with with us, as R.C. asked. I know what's wrong with us. We will tend to make God less holy and us look better. And I don't want that paradigm put wrongly. I want it rightly put. God, I am guilty before you. You could judge me. You're right to judge me. The fact that I take another breath is mind-boggling. And you're a holy God, and I have stood guilty since my conception by nature and every moment of my life outside the womb. I have proven it. I deserve nothing, I deserve hell, I deserve judgment, you're a holy God, you deserve my allegiance, and I have not given it, I've suppressed it, and you throw yourself on God's mercy and on the grace that is found in Christ on the cross who paid for that sin. That's what Jesus says is the only way. Unless you do that, you have no hope. That's the first reality. The second reality is there's only one life and then judgment. Notice what he says, you will all perish. Okay, look, his whole point here isn't that people died a physical death. His whole point here is that they died an eternal death. They died the most tragic death of all. What's his point? Look, there's only one life then judgment. Do not imagine that there's this moment you're gonna have at the end. You know, you breathe your last on some hospital bed or, or some wall falls on you or you, you get cut off by some driver who's inebriated and you're suddenly in the presence of Christ, what do you think he's going to do in that moment? You think he's just gonna ask you, well, which would you like? There are harps and lights and clouds over here and there's flames and a pain over here. Which do you want? By the way, that's not an accurate description. <laughs> I know what'll happen. Somebody will write me a card. Harps and clouds, pastor? Come tonight, we'll look at heaven and see what it's all about. But that's, that's what we do. We think there's gonna be some moment. There isn't. It is appointed unto men once to die. When you expire, you will face holy God. That's it. Jesus is making the point here. Unless you repent. If you don't repent before then, your last breath, there are no opportunities after that. You have traded on the patience of almighty God. For how long? Man, I I got saved in my early 20s, but I packed an awful lot of ugly stuff in those short few years. He was so patient, so patient. And interestingly enough, used a tragedy like the loss of a son to bring me to the end of myself. There, There was a gracious call upon my conscience in a human tragedy. Again, another great evangelism from human pain. What a gracious God. I should have been gone many times before then with no hope, certainly. And what about some of you? You lived years and years and years, decades you've lived. What are you doing? You think you can't be ended? And you think your heart is gonna change on its own? You must plead with God for a new heart. 
There's only one life, then judgment. Jesus makes that clear. And the third thing, he says, you're gonna, if you die without Christ, it's final. Notice he says you'll all likewise perish. Likewise. Not, not in the same way as that tragedy. Not a wall falling on you, perhaps, or, or being murdered by some perpetration of a crime. But you'll likewise perish in the same unprepared way. That's the point. They got up that day and they didn't know it was going to happen to them. That's how you'll die. Without Christ, it's final. That's it. You're, you're unprepared. You made no plan. You know what is amazing? It's amazing to me, and, and this kind of finishes it off here, but the parable that he gives to illustrate this shouldn't have one particular section in it that it has. You remember the parable, verse 6? A man had a fig tree which he'd planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it, didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit in this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? That's where it should end. That is where the parable should end because it fits the story, right? Jesus is warning them, unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. And by the way, it's a vineyard. You're not bearing any fruit. You're cut off. That's where it should end. And then, amazingly, you got this vine dresser who says to the owner, oh, hold on. It's just one more year. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to cultivate it. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to fortify some nutrients to, to help this vine see its need to bear fruit. And if it bears fruit next year, okay. But if not, cut it down. <laughs> and you look at the last part, cut it down. You say, well, why not another year? Why not another year? Why not another year? That's what our human heart does. But we've got to ask the question, why the first year? Why the extra year? Three years, no fruit? Look, God gave you life. How many years? Are you going to wait before you decide, you know what, I am, I am foolish to go up against the creator of the universe who, who offers mercy. He offers compassion in Christ. And if you're a believer here today, you already know this. You already know repentance is the only way. You already know that there's only one life than judgment. You already know that it's final and you're in Christ. And so that's your final state. You're a child of God. So why do we sometimes then complain against the justice of God when tragedy comes instead of seeing it as compelling evangelism? A compelling reminder of his grace. Weep with one another for sure. Tragedies are horrific in a fallen world until Christ comes and corrects all that. We live in a cursed life. And tragedies come and go. It is heartache. We get next to one another. We weep with each other about these things. But in it all, shooting through it all, right up the middle, ought to be a call to the conscience. God is patient, Jesus says. Do you suppose that you're better because these things haven't befallen you? No, you're not better. You're guilty. You're just living on borrowed breath. There's no telling when the wall is going to fall or your life's going to be taken from you. It's a vapor. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow.
Jesus says, settle your account today. I mean, this is just grace. And you know what's amazing is he's heading to the cross to pay for sins. So some he spoke to in the crowd who would ultimately believe in him, he was going to the cross to pay for their sin and letting them breathe until he gets there. This is the mercy of our great God. Here we are 2,000 years after the cross. God waited. God could have cut it off, but he waited. Don't trade on his grace. Don't trample it. Apostle Paul said, now is the time. An untimely tragedy is a great grace from the Lord, even if it's painful to us. It's a grace from the Lord. It calls the conscience to action. It's great evangelism. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Lord, there is something wrong with us. Our heart gravitates so much to the fear of tragedy instead of seeing in it a gracious call to the conscience. You're such a kind God. It's your kindness that should lead us to repentance. It's your patience that should break our hearts, our pride. We don't want to give up our sin. We don't want to live for you. We don't want to be embarrassed to have to confess our wickedness. We don't want others to know we've been rebellious, but that's precisely what you call us to come and say to you. And that you will offer grace in Christ and forgive all our sins. You come to dwell within sinners and make, make us your home. And then you grow us and make us like your son. And you teach us and instruct us with your merciful hand. It's just staggering, your mercy. How have we ever breathed another breath when we are the foremost of sinners? May we never lose that perspective, O oh God. May we always make it compelling evangelism when tragedy strikes. May we weep with those upon whom these things come, but more than that, may we never suppose that we're better having survived them. May we never imagine that we're less guilty than your holiness declares. Teach us these things, we pray, O God, today. Humble our pride, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.